Amen. And it is good to be in the Lord's house together with you and those who are worshiping with us online, uh, who are listening on the radio. We are so thankful that you're joining with us. I understand and know that with the increase of, of cases and numbers that uh, we've got several people who are choosing to stay away and, and to be away a little bit longer, and that is fine. We don't want to make anybody feel like that we're pressuring you or, or looking on you in any way if you are choosing to be home and worship with us online. We're thankful that you can do that and still be a part of what's going on here at First Baptist Church. I want to ask you all to please take your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. Starting a new sermon series today in Amos. I'm calling it The Roar to Restore. Because uh, Amos is both God roaring his judgment, but it's also to the end of restoration. That's always God's goal. Just a couple of words uh, for introduction. Amos wasn't a professional prophet. He says later on, he says, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. So he wasn't like a preacher boy. He wasn't, he wasn't the son of a preacher. He, that wasn't his background. He had no formal religious training whatsoever. He was a farmer of sycamore fig trees. He was a shepherd who oversaw sheep. He came from a small Judean town called Tekoa, just about a half day's walk southwest of Jerusalem. And you can see that there on the map and and where he's going up to, uh, to Israel to prophesy. You can also see the nations that we're going to look at here in just a minute that surround uh, God's people there. Yet God chose this small town, small business owner to straighten out the religious leaders and the practices of his day. God called a successful businessman to speak out against the mistreatment of the poor, to challenge God's people to covenant faithfulness. One author called him a courageous man with a contagious face, a faith, maybe face too. I don't know, he could have been good looking. He was a courageous man with a contagious faith sent by God on an outrageous mission. That's a pretty good summation of who Amos was. Now, the book of Amos that, that he has written down and left for us is the oldest of the prophetic books. It was the first one written down. And it may be classified as a minor prophet because of its size, but trust me, it's major in its message to us today. In fact, Amos would feel right at home today in our world, even though we're half a world away, 2,300 years removed from him. Uh, he lived, or I'm sorry, 2,700 years removed from him. He lived in a time where his society was changing rapidly, like ours. Both Israel to the north and Judah to the south were momentarily at peace with each other and with the surrounding nations. They were growing in prosperity and wealth. Their cities were exploding with growth. And so often happens in cultures when we're wealthy, when we're comfortable, when we're entertained, we become selfish and self-centered and self-focused. We become complacent to the oppression of others. We turn a blind eye to corruption. We begin to neglect our spiritual walk with God. And that's exactly what was happening in both Judah and Israel. And while through Amos God does have a message for Judah, his ministry primarily focuses on Israel. So here the Lord calls this shepherd and fig farmer, and he sends him to their northern neighbors to preach a message to them. And that message was no feel-good sermon. Look with me at Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. A little introduction here to the book. It says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, 
what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. So this sermon, he's letting us know right at the beginning, it's going to be like a lion's roar. God is thundering words of judgment from Jerusalem. And unless Israel repented and renewed their covenant with their Lord, judgment would come. God loved Israel. God wanted to restore Israel. But through this message from Amos, God is sort of putting the ball in their courts. Will Israel listen to the message? What will Israel do? But before he does that, God roars judgment at the six Gentile nations that surround his chosen people. And as God thunders his judgment at these nations, he uses this Jewish idiom. We're going to see this time and again. It says, for three sins, even for four. Now, that idiom references completion, the completion, the totality of their depravity, because what's three plus four? Seven. And seven is the Jewish number of completion. It was a way for God to say, I've had it up to here with your sins. That's enough. No more. Their sins were so egregious, so complete, God said, I'm no longer going to withhold my wrath. Judgment is coming. Yes, we know God is a patient God. Yes, He's merciful and long-suffering. But the Bible also tells us that there comes a day of accountability, a day of judgment. Warren Wiersbe said, to try God's patience is to tempt the Lord. And when we tempt the Lord, we invite judgment. Now, what's interesting is even though these were pagan Gentile nations, they weren't under the law of Moses, yet God still is going to hold them accountable for how they treat people. This tells us that God expects even pagan Gentile nations who don't worship Him, who don't claim to know Him, He expects them to listen to His commands and to live by His message. And the same is true for us today. God will someday judge all peoples and all nations by His holy, righteous standard. And though God accuses each one of these nations, as we're going to see, of a particular crime, He's really laying into them for one overarching sin. They all share the same sin. It's a sin that still plagues nations and communities and people today. God first wars His judgment against the sin of inhumanity. So I want us to look briefly at how the sin of inhumanity was expressed by these nations, how it still happens today. And I'm going to focus on the charges that God is bringing, not the judgments, okay? Uh, but, but trust me, if you, if you study the Bible and you study history, every one of these prophesied judgments did come to pass for these nations. The first thing we see is that Syria was guilty of military cruelty. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon, the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Syria had invaded the land of Gilead. Now, Gilead was on the eastern side of the, of the Jordan River, and there were tribes of Israel that settled there. You look back in Joshua. They, they didn't cross over. They settled there on that side of the Jordan River. And, and Syria is coming in. That's Damascus is coming in, and they are taking 
prisoners of war even among women and children. And they're treating them like grain on the threshing floor. Basically, God is accusing Syria of literally mowing down the citizens of Gilead, trampling them underfoot. And God says that He's going to rain down consuming fire of His judgment on them for it. While war is a sad reality in our world, it's a result of the curse, it's a result of sin, of our rebellion against God. Even still, God holds nations accountable, even today, for how they treat other nations. Now, as Christians, we should always be, first and foremost, on the side of peace. We understand that war comes and it happens and, and we should defend our country and our values and our freedoms, but our, our gut reaction should be peace. And we should certainly oppose any military action of any nation, including our own, that mistreats innocent civilians, women, and children. What Amos is saying here, God is watching how the nations even go to war with other nations. And secondly, we come to Philistia. And we're going to move through these real quick. Philistia was guilty of slavery. Let's pick it up in verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter of Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign Lord. So here we see the Philistines, Israel's ancient enemy. They're raiding Jewish villages in order to sell people into slavery. And what made this even more egregious was that they were selling them to the Edomites, the distant relatives of the Jews. Remember, the Edomites were descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob, which would later, he would later be named Israel, the children of Israel. So the Syrians are treating the children of Israel, the distant relatives, they're treating them like produce to be bought and sold. Just as the Syrians treated them as, as grain to be threshed, the Philistines are treating them as produce to be sold. It's, it's an inhumanity. They don't look at them as people. Now, of course, the topic of slavery is relevant to us today, right? I mean, it's in the news. We're thinking about it, and, and, and it's because of our own nation's history with the African slave trade. And tragically, the Bible was often used by people to defend that defenseless institution. But so did abolitionists use the Bible. In fact, it was, it was Christian preaching and teaching that was the fuel of the fire of the abolitionist movement that finally got rid of slavery in the Western world. So which is it? Is the Bible pro-slavery or is the Bible anti-slavery? Well, the Bible does not anywhere specifically call for the abolition of slavery, but the arc of biblical history is always toward equality and freedom. Always. When you, when you look at that story, the Bible begins with the truth that all people are created equal in the image of God. God calls Abraham to be the father of a people through whom he says he will bless all families on the earth. God reaffirms time and again that at the end of time, all nations, all tribes, all tongues will be gathered around the throne of God, not just Jewish tongues. Slavery, like war, is a result of our sin-sick and broken world. And the people of the Bible had to live within that reality. And the Old Testament law, you'll, if you study that, you'll see that God was putting strict limits on slavery. He elevated the treatment of slaves. He showed time and again His preference for freedom. Now, to us today, we look at that and say, well, that wasn't far enough. 
The Old Testament didn't go far enough. God didn't go far enough in that. But we have to remember that our day, uh, that their day, their culture around them was ensconced in slavery. That was a universal uh, institution at the time. And so when you read these limitations, when you read what God is doing in the Old Testament, he is, it's really revolutionary. God is slowly, progressively working his people toward freedom and equality. It really put Israel at odds with the other cultures around them. Now, the New Testament takes it further. It tells us that God loves all people. And he loves all people equally. Jesus died for everyone. Jesus will save anyone and everyone who comes to him in faith. In fact, Paul says that Jesus, God the Son, became as a slave so that we could be free and live as sons and daughters of the King of the universe. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free. There is, nor, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's the arc of biblical history. When you read Philemon, Paul is writing to his friend Philemon and urging him, imploring with him to receive back Onesimus, his former slave, not as a slave, but to receive him back as a free man and as a brother in Christ. Warren Wiersbe explains the Bible's impact on slavery. He said, It took centuries for the light of the gospel to dispel the darkness and make slavery illegal in the Western world. Now, we still have to acknowledge that this task isn't over. Slavery, or what people often call it today, human trafficking, is still running rampant in our world. It may be illegal in the United States, but it still happens, and we have to fight it. We must continue to educate ourselves and speak up and fight against slavery anywhere it exists and racism in any form today. That's what God is saying to the people of Philistia. Then he moves on to Tyre. And he says that Tyre was guilty of betraying friendship. Let's look at verse 9. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. Now, like the Philistines, the people of Tyre were also guilty of selling Israelite slaves to Edom. But Tyre's crime was worse because they were breaking trust with Israel. You have to understand that Israel and Tyre were longtime friends and allies. It was the king of Tyre that was a friend of David and Solomon. He sent supplies, uh, the cedars of Lebanon and all of these different supplies he sent down to Jerusalem for the construction of the temple. Theirs wasn't just a political treaty. It was a covenant of brotherhood. But now they have broken that covenant. You know, even when we disagree with others politically or philosophically, God still expects us to treat each other with respect, with civility and love, especially if we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Backstabbing, betraying trust, going back on our word, gossip, slander, these are the antithesis of the call of Christ to love each other, to lay down our lives for each other, to consider other people's needs over and above our own, to treat others the way we would want to be treated. We, God takes betrayal of friendship very seriously. 
Then he moves on to Edom. Edom was guilty of something similar. Edom was guilty of betraying family. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. Because his anger raged continually, and his fury flamed unchecked, I will send fire upon Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. As I said, the Edomites were distant relatives of the Jews. Both Jews and Edomites were descended from Isaac and from Abraham. Now, of course, this was an ancient family squabble, right? Going all the way back to Jacob and Esau. They were even fighting in the womb. But it seems when you read Genesis that the two brothers did make some amends with each other, but sadly that didn't translate to their descendants. As the Israelites were leaving Egypt and coming into the Promised Land, for example, the Edomites refused them passage through their land. They eagerly bought Jewish slaves from surrounding nations. They would even end up assisting the Babylonians in coming into Judah and laying siege to and destroying Jerusalem. The Edomites helped and cheered on uh, the prophet Obadiah prophesies against them for this. So here, though, the Lord condemns Eden for their persistent hatred. Listen to these words. Their persistent hatred. Their anger that raged continually with unchecked fury. They were guilty of stifling all compassion when their relatives, Israel, needed them the most. How descriptive is this terminology for so many people today in our country? Right? Yes, we have our problems. Yes, there have been bad actors in our history. Yes, there are bad actors alive and at work today. Yes, there is much injustice for which we can and should be angry. But God warns us through Amos never to pursue our brothers with the sword. We should never stifle our compassion in our anger. That Hebrew word, when it says that their, their, their anger raged, their fury raged continually, that word raged, it, it means to tear apart like a beast tearing apart its prey. We must not tear each other apart as if we were wild animals with our fury flaming unchecked. Think about it. If the people in our country heeded Amos' words here, what a different place our cities would be. What a different place our dialogue as a nation would be about serious issues. God is saying, don't let your fury go unchecked. Don't go to war with your brothers and sisters. Don't stifle your compassion. And then he moves on around to Ammon. Ammon was guilty of valuing land over life. Look at the rest of chapter 1 here. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he ripped open pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. Now the Ammonites and the Moabites, again, were very distant relatives to the Israelites. They were both descended from Abraham's nephew Lot. The Ammonites were ruthless enemies of Israel. But they weren't content just to raid cities and sell people as slaves as the, as the Philistines did. 
They were so greedy for the land of the Jews on the east side of the Jordan River that they were willing to commit genocide. You have to understand that this term about ripping open pregnant women, this was a common practice in the ancient world when one civilization wanted to eradicate the other. It wasn't enough just to kill the men in war. It wasn't enough just to kill the women. They even killed the children and the children yet to be born. They were ripping open women's wombs and killing their unborn children. Now, sadly, those kinds of actions, though common, were atrocious in the ancient world. And I say sadly because I think it might have been more atrocious to ancient cultures than it is to our culture. Because of the abortion industry and the abortion lobby, the idea of children being murdered in their mother's wombs, sadly, doesn't faze a lot of people. Our consciences have been seared. But make no mistake, God takes it just as seriously when it's a doctor in 2020 doing the killing as he was when it was the Amorites 2,700 years ago. They were guilty of valuing lives over land. It says that they ripped open women's wombs to extend their borders. They did this because they valued land over life. People uh, were, were devalued for power, pleasure, money, status, convenience, career. Does this sound familiar? Our culture puts all of those things over the lives of unborn children. And God warned the Ammonites that their cries would go unheeded amidst the storm of God's coming judgment. Why would we expect anything different for our country today? Moab, kind of the other end of the spectrum, was guilty of disrespecting the dead. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kirioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. God cares about people from the womb to the tomb. And we see that right here in these two passages of Scripture. Just based on Amos' sermon here, we see that God cares about all people of all ages and all ethnicities. And He wants us to treat all people humanely as fellow human beings, as equal in worth and value that we are all bearing the image of our Creator together. That even extends to how we treat those who have died before us. Moab had a similar long and rocky history with Israel, much like Edom and Ammon did. Moab also refused Israel passage when they were coming into the promised land. And they even tried to buy curses from the prophet Balaam. And and they sent women to seduce the Israelite men and to lure them into idolatry. But it's not for those sins that God is judging Moab. It's not just how they treated living Israelites that concerns God. It's how they also have treated, how they have disrespected the dead king of Edom, one of Israel's enemies. They disgraced his memory and humiliated the Edomite people by burning his bones. The sin of inhuman treatment isn't just committed against people's physical well-being, but also their spiritual and emotional well-being. Whenever the dead are desecrated... We commit injustice against the living. 
We further devalue human life and the idea that we are all part of a story bigger than ourselves, that we all contribute somehow to God's redemptive story in the world. It's as if we're saying, it's not enough that you're dead, I must erase you from history. Your legacy must die as well. And God takes that seriously. Amos chapter 2 tells us He does. He threatens to erase Moab and their leaders from history for doing this. And I don't think it's far stretched for us to take this and apply it again to conversations happening in our country today. To those who want to erase history. To desecrate the dead and their memory. And that's not to say that they were perfect. That's not to say that there's not maybe some conversations to be had over particular statues or symbols in our country. But it means that we should not take this approach that we have this blanket desire to look back through history to hold everybody to the standards that we hold people to today and to write them off. Rather, I think we take their story and we look at it as a part of our story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we recognize that they were human beings, flawed just as we are. Blind, they had blind spots just as we do. C.S. Lewis talked about chronological snobbery. I think we see a lot of that happening today. Now imagine, imagine how the people of Israel and Judah felt as they listened to Amos preach God's judgment to all of these surrounding enemy nations of theirs. Can you imagine? I can just imagine, you know, there's some Edomites over here, some Moabites over here, over here some, Phil- some Philistines, and, and you got Israel and Judah back here in the choir, right? And they're like, yeah, preach it. Amen, brother. Let them have it. But then Amos turns around and says, you don't get off the hook. God has a word for you too. He takes that finger he's been pointing at everybody else and he points it right at Israel and Judah. Crickets. (laughs) Gasps. Grumbles. They don't like it. God brings a harsh word to Judah and Israel too. While the Gentiles were guilty of sinning against the natural law of God that's inscribed in the human conscience, the people of Judah and Israel were guilty of despising and rejecting the revealed spiritual law of God. Theirs was a greater sin because they had greater blessings, greater privileges, and greater revelations. Therefore, they are held to a greater standard. First, Judah is called out for the sin of idolatry, which Israel is also guilty of. So I'm going to talk about those together here in a few moments. So first, I want us to look at the second overarching sin. God has denounced the sin of inhumanity, treating people as less than equal, worthy bearers of God's image. The second is the sin of injustice. Look at chapter 2, verses 6, and the first part of verse 7. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Israel was just as guilty as Syria and the Philistines of treating people like property. They were just as guilty as Ammon of valuing wealth and comfort over the dignity of human lives. Supported by corrupt judges, the rich were suing the poor who owed them money. And because the poor were poor, they could never repay their debts. It was basically forcing their fellow Israelites into slavery, into forced inservitude. 
brothers, enslaving brothers and sisters. Instead of doing that, they should have followed the law of Moses. The law of Moses provided for ways to assist the poor. It provided for ways to pardon those who couldn't pay their debts. But instead, they trampled their fellow Israelites as if they were the dust of the ground. And Amos has more to say about this later on. We're going to spend some more time talking about how we value money and career and property over people and what God has to say about that. It's the sin of injustice. And God takes it just as seriously as all those other sins that we've talked about. But the third overarching sin here in the last part of verse 7 is the sin of immorality. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Here Amos gives us the example of fathers failing their sons, of parents neglecting the spiritual and moral upbringing of their children. Now, we're not exactly sure commentators argue over what the specific sin is here. It could be that God is referring to the, to the practice of going into these pagan, these cultic prostitutes uh, in these temples like the Temple of Baal. Or it could be that he's referring to the sexual abuse of a household servant. Either way, it is a generational sin of immorality. Not only are these fathers giving a wink and a nod to the immoral lifestyles of their sons, but they're active participants in it. Paul similarly criticized the people in his day in Romans 1.32. He said, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, Amos is setting up some themes here that we're going to revisit later on, but we need to be warned today about perpetual generational immorality. Whether it's because we're not taking sin seriously enough We're not warning our children about them. We're not teaching them to lead lives of purity and marital fidelity. Or whether it's that their moms and dads are setting bad examples for their children. Either way, God will hold us responsible. As Jesus said in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. God takes very seriously how we raise our children. And are we passing on the gospel? Are we passing on righteousness? Or are we passing on immorality? And then the final overarching sin that he addresses is the sin of idolatry. And we're going to skip up to verses 4 and 5 and read what he had to say to Judah about that, and then we'll come back down to verse 8 and finish the chapter. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. And then down in verse 8, speaking to Israel, They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. I destroyed the Amorites before them, though he was uh, tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. 
The strong will not muster their strength. The warriors will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Both Judah and Israel were equally guilty of forsaking the worship of the Lord God and turning to idolatry. Worshiping the false gods of their neighboring nations. Now Israel and Judah, listen, in Amos' day they were very religious. They took all the sacrifices and the rituals and, and all of that, as we'll see later in Amos, they took that very seriously, but their worship was disingenuous. They were going through the motions. As the Lord later said to the prophet Isaiah, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. When the Jews and the Israelites are committing idolatry, it's almost like they were hedging their bets, right? They went to the temple to worship God on the Sabbath day, but then during the week they'd stop by this little shrine to God, whatever, during the week, you know, just to cover their bases. That's what they were doing. In Israel, immorality, idolatry, and injustice formed a sort of unholy trinity. That's what he's getting at in verse 8. They were using their unjust gains. They were suing the poor literally for the shirt off their back. And then they were sleeping on that shirt as a mat in front of this shrine to Baal as they slept with a prostitute on it. They would use the money they squeezed out of the poor to purchase wine to offer and drink in the name of these false idols. It's like the immorality, the injustice, the idolatry, the inhumanity all just collided right here in verses 8 and 9. And like Aaron and the Israelites at Mount Sinai who remember made the golden calf and said, this is the God that's delivered you from Egypt because you know Moses was taken too long up on the mountain. In the same way their idolatry was leading them to forget the Lord and the blessings that He had given Him. In verses 9 and 10, God reminds them how He defended them against their enemies. He liberated them from Egyptian slavery. He led them through the wilderness and gave them the promised land. But instead of humble gratitude for God's work in their lives, they rejected God's Word. They ridiculed those who tried to live faithfully before the Lord. That's what this is about, about the Nazarites. Remember, the Nazarites were a special class of, of Israelites. They would take a vow. They would abstain. They wouldn't cut their hair. They wouldn't drink uh, alcohol. They wouldn't touch uh, you know, anybody who was dead. They, they had certain things that they, they kept themselves from so they could dedicate themselves to the Lord in a special way. You remember Samuel and Samson were both Nazarites in the Old Testament. John the Baptist uh, was a Nazarite in the New Testament. The people of Israel, though, had become so depraved in their rejection of God's law that they would force Nazarites to drink alcohol as a way to ridicule them for even attempting to live godly lives. They forbade prophets from prophesying. They didn't want to hear what God had to say to them. One commentator wrote, Israel did not want to be holy to God, and so they refused to let those who proved faithful to stay faithful. They wanted to drag everybody down with them. Now God ends this chapter promising not to forget their sins. He tells them time and again, he is not going to turn back his wrath. Unlike the fathers who encourage their sons to commit immorality, God the Father never gives a pass to sins of inhuman treatment of others, of injustice and immorality and idolatry. He never turns a blind eye to that. Rather, God promised that Israel would be crushed under the weight of their sin. And he said, you can try to fight, you can try to flee, 
but it's futile. The lion has roared. God has thundered his judgment from Jerusalem. But did Israel listen? Did Judah listen? Are we listening? Because if we listen, then we're going to hear the call of God to confess our sins, to repent and turn from them, and to follow Him. And we're going to look at that next week in chapter 3. But today, let me say that the only hope for any of us, the only hope for our country to escape the wrath of a holy God is if we place ourselves under the covering mercy of Jesus Christ and the blood He shed on the cross. Amen? All the bows and arrows and swords and shields can never protect us from God's judgment, but His covering grace and mercy can. God has provided a way. Jesus took the full force of God's wrath upon Himself on Calvary's cross so that we could be spared eternal separation in hell and we could be liberated from the slavery of sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you confess your sins today? If you're watching online or listening on the radio, will you turn from your sins, repent, and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation? Listen, it doesn't matter how inhumanely you've treated others. It doesn't matter the injustice you've perpetuated, the immorality in your past. If you reject them, if you reject the false idols, the false gods, and the false promises of this world, and you put your trust in Jesus, the Bible says you will be saved. You will be forgiven and given a fresh start. And Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Listen, y'all, let's pray for our country. That we as a nation would call upon the name of the Lord in humility. That we would turn from our national sins, so that God will hear from heaven, will forgive our sins, will heal our land through another great awakening. That is the only hope for the United States of America. It doesn't matter who sits in the White House. It's who sits in the hearts of the people of this country. Whatever God has spoken to you today, as we stand and sing in a moment, I invite you to come and respond. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, this roar, this thunder of judgment, Lord. And I know that, that these are not easy things for us to hear. And I know that there are a lot of thoughts and opinions and arguments out there over some of these things. But God, all that matters is what you say. All that matters is what your word says. And we either listen to your word and we trust in you or we reject you and suffer the consequences. Father, you don't want us to suffer the consequences. You have, you have bent over backwards. You have left heaven and come to earth. You've taken on flesh and blood. You have suffered and died so that we could be saved and forgiven and freed so that the brokenness that we see in our world could be made whole again so that we don't have to be prisoners to our past, that we can be free to walk in the light of the Lord. God, I pray that you would move and work in our hearts and in our nation to bring awakening to this land and revival to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing?